Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. Can We Talk explores gender, history, and Jewish culture. On today's show, Emily Nussbaum talks about portrayals of Jewish women on television. Emily is the television critic for The New Yorker. She's also the author of I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. It's a compilation of her essays about television in the era of peak TV. This is the second in our three-part series of author interviews this fall. Emily Nussbaum won a Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for her criticism. She says these days she's been thinking a lot about her own connection to television. This has been a period when I found myself looking back on my whole life and trying to figure out where my tastes and values were formed. And also wrestling as a critic with this question of, like, what do I do with this art? Emily has written about shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Breaking Bad, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which she famously did not like. She told JWA executive director Judith Rosenbaum that there are much better shows to watch that feature the Jewish experience. And here's Judith to introduce her interview with Emily Nussbaum. Hi, Judith. Hi, Nahani. Judith, we'll get to your interview with Emily in a minute, but can you give us a preview of some of the shows you and and Emily talked about? Sure. We talked about a lot of different shows. We talked about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Transparent, Broad City. And what's the landscape like now for female Jewish characters on TV? How has it changed? There is so much interesting, complex Jewishness on TV right now, which is really exciting. One of the things we talked about is that you know, gone are the days of characters who are only ambiguously Jewish or coded Jewish, like Rachel Green on Friends or Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld. Now there's really a lot more diversity, more specificity, and along with that, maybe less stereotyping. All right, let's listen to your interview with Emily Nussbaum. Emily Nussbaum, welcome to Can We Talk? We are so thrilled to have you on our show. Thanks for having me. You have just published a new book called I Like to Watch, and I have to tell you, I totally binged it, if you can say that, about a book. Um, It was one of those, you know, kept saying, one more essay, one more essay, and then found myself up in the middle of the night still reading. So let's start at the beginning. You mentioned that you started out as a PhD candidate in literature, and I I know that um, you were working on a dissertation about the actress-slash-prostitute-slash-Jewess in Victorian novels, I think. Did I get that right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Overlapping some... categories of actress, Jewess, and prostitute. <laughs> Definitely, I'm in the you know small group of people who would love to read that dissertation. Um, but it occurs to me that in some ways that's not that different from writing about some of the things you write about, like performance of gender and identity on TV. It's sort of a it's a different medium, but it's a similar kind of theme. Um, but you say that in grad school you were kind of surrounded by, you know, men in glasses and sweater vests who saw books as superior to TV and sacred in a different way. So did it feel transgressive to write about TV with the same kind of seriousness and level of interest and care that you used to bring to your academic study of Victorian novels? Well, I think that was part of the pleasure of it. I mean, I think it's complicated. It wasn't only guys that looked down on TV, but as I talk about in the book, there definitely was this set of guys that I thought of as the sweater vests that had this baked in analysis of the entire medium as being degenerate and commercial, which it is, um, and therefore not worthy of a serious discussion as art. So it, I don't know whether I found it transgressive, but I think it brought out a kind of bratty 
excited quality in me to make the argument, which is a great way to get into any kind of intellectual area. <laughs> you know, honestly, it's not such a bad thing to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. It definitely carries people through. I mean, essentially, I wasn't interested in writing criticism. I was interested in writing about TV. And it ended up being a good move because the last 20 years have marked an incredibly vibrant period for the medium. So I'd love to talk about a few of the different shows that you write about. Um, and I thought maybe we'd start with Sex and the City, which is a show that we have talked about actually on our podcast before. In our episode on Jewish hair, we talked about um, the coffee shop scene where Carrie compares her unruly self and hair to Barbara Streisand's Katie in the movie, Katie. The Way We Work. <laughs> Katie, right? Yeah. But he can't be with her because she's too complicated and she has wild curly hair. Hello, c -c -c curly. Yeah. So he leaves her and marries this simple girl with straight hair. Um, and in an essay in your book, you talk about Carrie Bradshaw as a kind of female anti-hero. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you arrived at that conclusion? The anti-hero part of it is something that is really central to some of the arguments I make in the book um, in a bunch of different ways. I mean, I talk about the whole set of powerful male anti-hero dramas and how much they shape TV, especially at the beginning of the century. And I'm not against those shows. I like a lot of those shows, but I have been frustrated by the way they've dominated TV discussion and essentially been perpetually presented as the top of the top 10 list. And one of the ways that Sex in the City was treated was as a guilty pleasure and as something that was junky. And one of the things that I feel like people didn't do with the show is talk about the craft of that show. And you can talk about that in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it's a very stylized show. It's a funny half-hour show. But it has all of these, to me, beautifully designed elements to it that get across interesting theories. The characters change over time. But Carrie was always one of the most upsetting elements of the show. And I think that is because a lot of women are used to things that have rom-com DNA in them being designed for them to identify with and to feel lifted up by. And so people would criticize Carrie when she acted poorly or selfishly or when she made people anxious as though that wasn't deliberate in the show. Like somehow the character had to be a good role model to women. And to me, the value of that show was specifically because Carrie was designed as an upsetting mirror for women watching it. Like her neediness, her weirdness about sex, about friendships, and all of that kind of stuff was part of the reason that show was a breakthrough show for me. To me, an antihero, and you know, people can define this in different ways, is basically someone who does bad things at times, but the audience feels both connected to the person and mirrored by them in an unsettling way, like they're sort of a cathartic reflection of the viewer. And I think that's very true with Carrie. People would watch it, and instead of being able to say, oh, me too, you go, girl, they would actually feel uh, like unsettled and made queasy kind of by her behavior, which was sort of bad behavior in specific feminine ways, like you know, neediness and clinginess and talking too much about her boyfriend and then cheating on her boyfriend and all these kinds of things. I mean, it's a it's a long conversation, but I basically think the character was often misread as though she was supposed to be a blueprint for women. And that's the beginning, I think, of a long period on TV of characters that similarly created anxious reactions in their audience, especially female viewers who had been trained to like judge the main character if she didn't behave in a way that 
was uh, like a good blueprint for other women watching the show, which is to me, you know, it's a misunderstanding of art and comedy and all this stuff. But luckily, Carrie's not alone in this. I mean, there were shows from dramas like Homeland to, you know, the Mindy Kaling show. And uh, I mean, I could name a million shows that have characters that have this kind of twisty, complex relationship with the audience because of their misbehavior. And I feel like Sex and the City is one of the shows that helped open the door for that. Um, but we have to talk about the end of the show, right? Where yeah. Carrie reunites with Mr. Big, who I, I love the way you describe him as uh, woven out of red flags. Um, and you talk about how you felt that that showed a failure of imagination on the part of the writers. And I loved the way you frame this in the language of the show. If I can quote from your essay, um, you wrote, and I can't help but wonder, what would the show look like without that finale? What if it were the story of a woman who lost herself in her 30s, who was changed by a poisonous, powerful love affair, and who emerged finally surrounded by her friends? Who would Carrie be then? It's an interesting question, one that shouldn't erase the show's powerful legacy. We'll just have to wait for another show to answer it. So do you think that there's been another show that has answered that? Do you know, are women finally allowed to have the same kinds of complicated endings that are not only marriage plots? Yeah, I actually think there have been shows that did that in various different ways. I think there's been a real shift in what's allowable. I mean, I'm actually thinking about what shows ended in a very different way. I mean, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a very different kind of show, but an excellent show. um, I love that show. Yeah, it's fantastic. If we're going to talk about, like, Jewish TV stuff, I've written down a list, and that's prime on it. It's not just about Carrie ending up with Big. It's about her boss's misery as a single woman. It's about Big's ex-wife and her kind of fumes of unhappy divorce. Like, the show just didn't have the capacity quite to imagine a woman in her 40s, 50s, and 60s who was satisfied with her choices and who was not with a man. What I'm actually thinking of is not about shows that um, have happy or unhappy endings or end up with women who don't end up with their boyfriend or something, but shows that actually show the full range of older women, which is essentially what that final part was about. I mean, it was about Carrie entering her 40s, New York turning into winter, and her feeling the chill of ending up alone. The argument that people who made that show, including Sarah Jessica Parker, made for that ending was straightforwardly like, that's what Carrie wants. Like, she is a person who is kind of obsessed with romance and would want to be with somebody. But the problem with the ending is that there is no way Big would change that way. Like, it's just, I mean, I do think it sends a bad message. But, you know, like, they had an episode which was the natural ending for their relationship when he has a heart attack and she goes to him as a candy striper and she realizes, like, there are these moments that his heart opens and then they disappear and she just can't wait around. Like, that was the real ending of the show. It was a shift imperceptible to anyone but me. But I knew Big's heart had closed again. Maybe it would reopen in another five years, maybe it wouldn't. But I knew myself well enough to know that that's not enough. This theme about sort of aging and representation on TV makes me think, of course, of Joan Rivers, who, frankly, I first encountered in her days on the red carpet and was sort of like, who is this creature? Um, And then, of course, 
learned so much more about her history and came to appreciate her in a different way. And we've obviously memorialized her in some way with the name of our show, Can We Talk, which was yeah. her catchphrase. Um, and she's also featured in a documentary that JWA made called Making Trouble about Jewish women comedians. And I learned so much from that about her um, her history and her trajectory and um, and the complications of her work, which you write about so beautifully um, in your book. So for people who don't know Joan Rivers in her fullness, can you talk a little bit about what you find complicated about her? Well, I, I like you, um, first came upon her on TV, essentially insulting Kate Winslet's arms at the Oscars when she won the Oscar for Titanic. Like, mm-hmm. I'd also, I'd seen her before because, you know, she was on late night talk shows and she was fascinating because she was so vibrant and often genuinely funny, but she was terrifying to me because she really did seem like the body cop for the world. And I didn't know that much about her history. I just knew that she was the most famous female stand-up comedian. And in the 80s and 90s, I was very interested in pretty much any woman doing stand-up comedy. Um, and she was the number one person who was out there. And, you know, I, I had all sorts of complicated feelings toward her, um, ranging from fear to fascination to seeing her as a role model to being slightly disgusted by her. And also she was a very public Jewish woman as well. Like, you right. know, that was what a lot of her routine was about. Um, when she died, and she always said this about herself, she was like, when I die, everybody will think I was a saint. Like, you know, which is true. Um and there were a lot of memorializations of her that celebrated things that are genuinely true about her, including her being a, uh, uh, you know, basically before there were famous female comedians, making her career kind of against the tide, being an incredibly hard worker, all the way back to when things were very difficult for her. But a lot of those left out to me the kind of misogyny in her comedy that was key to why people found her funny and why she was powerful. And so when I wrote this essay, a lot of it was about working through those conflicted feelings that I had. And it was wonderful going back and reading her early books and watching a lot of her routines on TV. And her whole thing was about self-loathing. Bodies drop, that's another thing. But look at this, if I were not wearing a bra, without a bra, I get up in the morning, this is how I walk to the bathroom, it's just... And this is a big history for female comedy in general, is a woman on stage going, this, which, which she would literally do, just gag at her own body. But of course, she was a very cute young blonde in a black cocktail dress with pearls, which was the whole powerful shtick of it. It's like, even if a girl like, even like this, like some nice uptown girl, can't get laid, can't get married, can't get a date, like the world is this hideous war between men and women. And there was some truth to that, that she was plugging into and that people wanted to laugh at and that was very taboo. But I feel like her act changed a lot over time and I do feel like people are pretty willing to erase the large part of her career that was about calling Liz Taylor fat, (laughs) which is when I came upon her. And, you know, I think that you can't string these things apart and decide to separate the part that's about rebelliousness and hard work and ignore the part that's about the appeal of female self-hate. So that's part of what I tried to write about in this piece. Yeah, I mean, I, there's so much ambivalence in her. I mean, and I think even the, you can see such a through line from her early work as you're talking about the way that she tried to sort of embody that, you know, turn the Jap in on herself and the way that she used plastic surgery, right? I yes. Mean, 
I mean, her message was don't listen to people who talk about inner beauty, about men and women be caring for one another. This is how the world works. Like, men have power, and if you want to get into the circle of power, you better get yourself to look hot. Other women are your competition. And, you know, this is my ugly real politic. But she intended it as a generous bit of advice. Look good, look good, look good. I spit on education. Did you go to college? Tell us how it helped you now. So maybe it makes sense to transition into talking about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, okay. which obviously is a show that borrows quite a bit from Joan Rivers' life story, although places it in a different time period, and there are lots of things that are different as well. And you famously dislike the show, which and you write about how that sort of surprised you, that you know you talk about how this, how the show was, I think you say, um, it had a premise that was so far up my alley, it was practically chopping onions in my kitchen. A Jewish girl does stand-up comedy in the late 1950s in New York when Joan Rivers first rose to, to fame. So tell us a little bit about why the show doesn't work for you and, and also what it's like when a show that you want to like lets you down. Well, I will say that in the first season of Mrs. Mrs. Maisel, I, 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 I was put off by the show, but I didn't write about it because people were just embracing it. That show had amazing timing. That show came out post-Trump, and people really were seeking a beautiful, candied escape. And the show is aspirational and positive and presents her as this kind of thrilling hero on the rise who doesn't suffer any self-doubt whatsoever and not a lot in her way and is received and applauded. I, I have a variety of problems with it, but one of them is that and I'm not saying it is literally Joan Rivers, but she has so many similarities and it's in the same period that it's impossible to miss the parallels, including the fact that she makes her brand off dressing in a little black dress with pearls and being like a nice, rich Jewish uptown girl in these dirty downtown clubs and doing a thing about you know, her life. And actually, Joan Rivers also had an early starter marriage. So there were a bunch of different things. It's not exactly the same story. But the main thing is that Mrs. Maisel does these routines, which I will say, with one exception in the second season, I generally find weirdly unfunny. And I get very frustrated by shows that have super uh, amped up success stories that are based on somebody's talent, where the talent is not demonstrated on the screen. So that's one frustration. The other thing is... Or the, or the process of... The process of learning, like she immediately is this wunderkind that everybody adores, everybody thinks is beautiful, perfect. The other thing is that, you know, as I said, Joan Rivers, she made her bones on self-loathing because female self-loathing in that period was a natural response to an extremely screwed up economy of single female life and being married and women's looks and women's bodies, all that stuff. The whole point of Mrs. Maisel is that she is a massive narcissist. Although on the show it's not preceded as, you know, presented as narcissism, it's, pre pre uh, it's presented as ultra-confidence earned by her super talents. And she's immediately beloved by everybody when she does this kind of super dirty truth-telling, I'm gorgeous, anybody would want me, I'm amazing in bed, how could my husband leave me? Ignore this, ignore this. But imagine coming home to these every night. It's actually kind of the inverse of what Joan Rivers was doing because Joan Rivers' whole thing was going, eh, eh, I'm disgusting. Now, in reality, that's what appealed to people because it actually had this sort of powerful quality. 
Mrs. Maisel is doing the opposite, but people also just cheer and rave for her. She does her tight 10 in the shortest time of any stand-up comic ever. I don't know. There are many reasons why the show irritated me. That was one. I will say there's this other thing that I think is a little complicated that has to do with the Jewishness of the show, which people seemed very excited by and weirdly in a lot of reviews or responses to treat as this huge breakthrough. Like, oh, there's this Jewish show showing a Jewish woman. And I'm like, there are a ton of Jewish shows. <laughs> like, like, there are a lot of Jewish creators on TV. There are a lot of other shows that have Jewishness in them. And I found the Jewishness on the show, um, with some exceptions, because there are parts of it that are interesting, to be really sticky vaudevillian and in certain cases bordering on offensive <laughs> like especially Joel's parents who come from a relatively similar background to my family where it's like there's a class distinction that's not really well described in the show but you know to anybody who's from this background is familiar like sort of the German educated wealthy uptown Jews and the idea of like Polish Russian garmentos downtown Joel's parents are like anti-Semitic stereotypes. They're these coarse, gross, sort of shystery, um, you know, piggish, sex joke-making, uneducated boors. So the priest turns to the nun and says, excuse me, are you staring at me? Is this a dirty joke? Would I tell a dirty joke in mixed company? Yes. It's not a dirty joke. Eat that, honey. Eat it so that I won't. So the nun <laughs> says to the priest, I remember you. We met once at the Vatican. This is a dirty joke. It's not a dirty joke. But anyway, I was very gratified when Andy Samberg made this weird joke at the Emmys where he's like, I, I'm not saying he got this from my piece, but he made a joke where he was like, Mrs. Maisel, the show that makes you say... Is that anti-Semitic? <laughs> so anyway, it's it's arguable. We could talk about a million shows because it really is like a broad range of um, of TV shows by Jewish creators with different perspectives on Jewishness. Many of them by and about women. Yeah. So what are some of your favorites? Because that's what I would I would love to hear that and sort of uh, what what are the the alternatives that are a little bit more satisfying. Well, the the big ones for me, and a lot of these have recently ended, so I'm in mourning. Um, but, you know, Broad City was a fantastic show. Yeah, I was surprised you didn't have an essay on that in the book. I kept looking. Yeah. I got to the end of the book, and I was like, wait a second. Did I miss it, the piece on Broad City? So it was originally in the book. I, I literally just couldn't include every essay. But I, I, I sort of wish that I could have included it because it is one of the most important shows to me. And um, in that, I also talked about, I don't know whether I talked so much about the Jewishness of the show, but I talked about the particular style of positive humor on the show and and man there there are few shows that i felt like had such sort of jewish specificity um i also love transparent very much uh, and it's a very different kind of show um but transparent created by Jill Soloway i remember watching the first episode and i was like oh my god like it's like they're making holocaust jokes it's this specific kind of la family from a specific background has a particular dark sense of humor, the way in which their sexuality, the dysfunction within their family, some of the relationship of it to the Holocaust background with the family that ends up getting pulled out later, I thought was very powerful and idiosyncratic. And, you know, that's another show that I would name. And then Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is this musical and literally had the the Jap rap battle. And this beef up too hard as nails she bruised from Scarsdale. We've got a conflict of interest. I'm about to give Levine the business. Spitting venomous hate. Penetrating her defenses. It's a Jap battle. A what? A Jewish American princess. Rap battle. 
you know, songs like... One of my favorite yeah. scenes. Remember How We now Suffered. Now it's time to celebrate. Grab a drink and fix a plate. But before you feel too great, remember that we suffered. Nights like these are filled with glee. Down Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Transparent, and Broad City are extremely aesthetically different shows. Like, they're just from different universes. This is the joy, is that you get a lot of shows like this that do, they don't have to be the woman show or the Jewish show. They are the my, the child of the specific mind of the person who made them. I think it's interesting also what you're saying about the specificity because I think that sometimes people get tripped up on that. Like, I remember when I first saw Transparent, which I also loved, and I saw the first episode, I think actually when it was just a pilot that Amazon was testing, and I, I had watched it by myself, and I went upstairs to my husband and I was like, I just watched the Jewiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, like I TV totally, ever. yes. And so then he watched and he said, but they're so dysfunctional. It's yeah. like sort of cringy. And I said, I know, but they're so real. It's so real. It's like, it's, you know, and, and I think some people feel discomfort with that, like sort of worried that it will be... Bad you know, for the too, Jews. Right, or something. But I think that there is a difference between something that just is a very specific context and something that feels more like a stereotype the way that some of the some other depictions that you've mentioned do. So one of the original pieces that you wrote for the book is this self-reflective piece on what to do with the art of bad men, like Woody Allen and Bill Cosby and Louis C.K. Um, and I really appreciated the honesty of the piece. Can you say a little bit about how you came to write it? Well, it has a very straightforward explanation. I, my um, my book leave was in the fall of 2017. So I literally had like a week and a half of organizing what I was planning to write as the new essays for the book when the Harvey Weinstein pieces dropped. So I, I, I was, like I think many people, spun out emotionally and psychologically as, you know, expose after expose dropped and the Me Too movement began. And it was overwhelming, and I basically felt like I had to write about it. And it's definitely a much more personal essay than I usually write. Um, you know, and it's an essay that's written in the midst of social turmoil and a, and a revolution. But what it's specifically about is something that I had to face as a television critic, which is the question of, you know, what do I do with my closeness to the art of men who've done bad things? And I trace it back at the beginning of it to Woody Allen, who's an absolutely formative artist for me. And obviously there's not space in a podcast to get into every detail of Woody Allen. And But, you know, I basically tried to make the piece simultaneously walking through um, my personal history in terms of this, because I think like a lot of women, this has been a period when I found myself looking back on my whole life and trying to figure out where my tastes and values were formed. And also wrestling as a critic, which is not something everybody deals with, with this question of, like, what do I do with this art? Like, you know, how do I critique it? Like, can I, you know, can I still love the things that I love? Can I still criticize the things I criticize? Like, how do I do it? Right. I mean, I really appreciated the personal reflection in it, and I think that it it sort of made visible the process that so many people were going through on their own. And even if it, even if you don't, you know, come out with some kind of sense of closure um, that just felt very real and that this is an on and, and there is no closure right this we're just at the beginning of this process um, one of my favorite lines in the essay is um, you wrote I didn't want to erase the art made by these men I wanted to scribble all over it in rage confusion in pleasure too to make it mine instead of theirs um, and in some ways I sort of saw this as like almost like a mission statement for your work as a critic, sort of putting forth this model of the critic as the creator, not just as a commentator on 
what others have created. Is that, do you see criticism as your art form? Yeah, I do. I mean, when I'm writing criticism, I do see it that way. I often joke in this sort of self-deprecating way that criticism is a, um, a parasitical kind of uh, task, which is, I think, also true. I mean, I love and admire the work of artists. It's a different kind of risk. But yes, that, that passage is also about my frustration and my slightly destructive desire to, you know, poke through and mess with stuff that's making me angry or the person who created it is making me angry. You have this place where you say, uh, what if the model of male genius and most often white straight male genius was not the force that the rest of us needed to get around to go through to become who we were? I think about this all the time, and I think you know the work that we do at the Jewish Women's Archive is basically this, trying to center women's stories and expand the range of role models that we see. And it feels to me like that's one of the big underlying themes of your book, is challenging that sort of assumed white male genius and pointing out where it's just a facade. Yeah, it's, exp it's expanding and exploding the canon and taking seriously all sorts of things that are seen as trivial and off the radar. Uh, on the other hand, I, will, I do have to say... You know, part of what that essay is about is the fact that I, I do believe that, and part of that essay is about mourning the possibility of a different world in which more of those voices were let in. And for instance, like Joan Rivers was not the only female stand-up let onto The Tonight Show and lots of other things. That said, I still love a lot of works, works of art that give me, that I find um, confusing and shocking and sometimes offensive. I think that there is great art that has a shattering and weird effect on the creator. And I'm not saying you can separate the artist from the art, but I'm just saying there is a level which I feel like my role as a critic is actually to represent honestly those kinds of mixed responses to things and not to just do honest, the simpler thing, which is to erase or denounce them, but to actually wrestle with them. Well, thank you so much, Emily. It's been really such a pleasure to speak to you for Can We Talk. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Judith, for that very interesting interview with Emily Nussbaum. One last question for you. Has your conversation with Emily or reading her criticism changed the way you watch TV? Yeah, reading Emily has really helped me understand TV shows in a larger cultural context. She writes about how TV has become more respected as a medium, but I think she's really helped make that possible by bringing a serious critical approach to it. She's also helped me see how the work that we do every day at JWA, which is centering women's stories and expanding the range of portrayals of women's lives, is happening on TV right now, too. So I've really appreciated that. Judith Rosenbaum is the executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive. Emily Nussbaum is the New Yorker's television critic and author of I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. I Like to Watch is on this year's Jewish Women's Archive book club list, if you'd like to take part, visit jwa.org slash book club. Thank you for joining us for Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. This episode was produced by Anne Hoffman. Thanks also to Becky Long. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. You can find Can We Talk online at jwa.org slash talk and anywhere you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your friends so that others can find us. If you'd like to help us produce more episodes of Can We Talk, please go to jwa.org donate to make a contribution. Till next time, I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. <laughs>